0: Thank you, ladies, and welcome to Grace Reformed Baptist Church. Andy is out, so I get to do the announcements today, Um, most of which you can find in your bulletin inside your worship folder, so I won't bore you with all of those. But uh, today is Kim Nelson's birthday, and she wanted us to sing happy birthday. No. (laughs) Jerry said if it's on the day, we have to sing. If Andy was here, he would, but she's... She's down working in the nursery, and so, uh, but I thought I'd embarrass her if I had a chance. Anyway, the only other announcement I have to make is for uh, next week, and that is mm-hmm. we will have the children's choir uh, get together and training, but we're going to move it into a different location. Lord willing, it'll be ready. Uh, this house that's next to us on Culver Street. Uh, The downstairs area, there's a big room in there that we've painted and fixed up a bit uh, because our children's choir is growing a little bit, which is good. So uh, parents, bring your kids next week, and uh, we'll have plenty of room for them to to sing. And and again, I'll mention in a minute, but I really appreciate you guys helping with the children's choir, and we're looking forward to doing that. But that'll be after the morning service uh, next week in that new location. And we'll remind you, well, somebody remind you. I won't be here next week, but Jerry will remind us of that next week. All right, so let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. I want you to prepare your heart to worship Christ. So I'm going to give you a moment, uh, even now, to prepare your heart privately, where you're at. And then I'll pray for us corporately as we begin. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and let me let you pray Privately, where you're at right now. Father, what a great privilege it is to come to worship your holy name we have gathered together as your people to do that very thing. I pray, Father, that indeed you would teach us, teach us, as the psalmist said, the way of your statutes, so that we might be able to keep them to the end, empowered by a regenerate mind and the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would give us understanding of your truth and your ways, that it might bring about flourishing inner life. I pray that you would lead each one of us into the path of life. I pray for the very least among us, the very young as well as the very old, that all our days might be days in which follow the path to life and truth and lead others to life and godliness. I pray, Father, that you would keep us from wasting time at looking at worthless things. May we be constantly reminded of those things that are of great value, ultimately you. I pray, Father, that you would bless us and keep us. May the commandments that you have given to us be those things that are desired from our heart not to hold to because of a legal requirement but because of our love for you I pray that you bless us I pray that you'd keep us I pray that you'd make your face to shine upon us I pray that you will receive our worship in the way we intend to give it to you indeed today may it be, sweet in your view, and may it be pleasant and building up to us. I pray for your goodness and glory to be manifested today in a special way. I pray this in Christ's
1: name, amen. Good morning. Let's sing, let's take our hymn books and stand, and let's turn to number 154. What a friend we have in Jesus. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, let your request be known to God. Philippians 4, 6, 154. five hundred and sixteen like a river glorious you will keep it perfect in perfect peace with the mind that is dependent on you Isaiah twenty six three. <laughs> Seated.
0: Today is Mother's Day, and I hope you have your celebrations as you would normally do on today and reflect on your mother, your spouse, and others that have meant so much to you in your life. In the church, I've been doing this a little differently, though, within the church, and that is to recognize the spiritual value of motherhood, which is a feminine expression. And unfortunately in this day we're losing that a bit, and so I think it'd be helpful to be reminded of that biblically. If you'll notice inside your worship folder I put a text of scripture as well as a definition of femininity, this is this spiritual concept of, of motherhood. Here in the text from Second Timothy, Paul reflects back on his protege, Timothy. And he says, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice, as well, and I'm sure dwells in you as well. This is the concept of spiritual motherhood. Whether you have biological children and care for them now or whether you don't, this disposition of femininity to provide this kind of nurturing for young children is something that we honor within the church, and we use this day to to make that expression. All of our children's programs, all of them, are led by women they teach our children in the various classes they nurture them they pray for them we we have a regular prayer team of women who pray for every individual child within the church and organize all of that we're praying for their salvation for their sanctification for them to grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord. And if you see that, one day when they confess Jesus Christ as Lord, it is because of the hidden blessing that they have been given by those women who have nurtured them. Whether they're nurturing them for the choir, as you see, the children to come and sing from time to time, or even today when one of them comes forward to to share with us a musical interlude. This honor is gone, and we want to recognize that because this is done quietly, behind the scenes most of the time. It's not so quiet when some of them get upset and the parents have to deal with them, but they're mothering these children. And this is a great treasure to indeed do that, and it's a great honor to God and to their parents and to other women that are in their life that have contributed to their spiritual welfare. So, because I'm good at embarrassing people, I'd like to invite one of our protégés, the protégé of Amber's, he up to today, and that would be Stella. Stella, if you come on up for us. And Stella is learning to worship God, expressing her love of Christ through music, and Amber has been working with her on that, and so she would like to play for us. I think it's Joyful, Joyful, is that the hymn today? And so, Stella, we'd like for you to honor your mother and Amber and ultimately God, and that's what we're doing, and we're, we're looking for a joyful time to hear from you. Would you play for us today? Thank mm-hmm. you. As your mom, as well as your mentor. And I wanted to thank you for being so brave to share with us this today on your own. And we're looking for more of that to come in days ahead. This is just a small expression of what is being done, and there's many more examples of it to which uh, we want to note. And I want to say a special prayer and blessing For you and women and and encourage you as you nurture others in their spiritual well-being. Um, And so I'll do so through a token of of a gift, and I do want to pray for you as well. And the way I do it, I'll have everyone who is 16 years of age, a female, 16 years of age or older, please stand. I'm going to bless you, and I'll have some young men. If you two boys want to help me up here, come on up, guys. And ladies, if you're 16 years of age and older, if you'll stand up, we want to recognize you, and these boys will hand you a flower. Go ahead and stand, and go ahead and start handing out your flowers. And then you come on up and get more and hand them out. and So everyone gets one who's 16 years of age and older. And don't forget this pianist. Actually, I'm going to get her. Did you get one yet? Okay, now you do. Thank you very much. While they're doing that, I'll I'll go over something quickly with you. This definition that's given here about women, the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's differing relationships. I think that's incredibly important. This definition comes from the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. They'll have a uh, theological treatise on this subject that gets this in depth. This is the heart of this description of what femininity is. I think it's very well, and it's explained through an Exposition of Scripture, you can find that online by searching biblical, uh, uh, the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood and download it as a PDF of about 400 pages, or you can buy the book yourself. But it's a, it's a great resource to understand that. And in our day, it needs to be understood. And again, I can't overemphasize the value of women, within our culture, and within our church. The very beginning, when God created man, he, he knew this all along. He just wanted to let us know that it's not good for you to be alone. <laughs> so he made a woman. A woman to be complimentary, to be absolutely necessary, to be different. Yes, it would be a lie of Satan to say that we are one and the same. We're not. We're uniquely made, yes, imaging forth those various attributes of God made in His image, but expressing it with a different nuance together that we might glorify Him and flourish. And we live in a fallen world, and this isn't every circumstance, but for most of you it would be simply this, to get married, have children, and raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We, our church would not be able to hold the, enough, uh, we wouldn't, we'd have to split off and make several churches if we continued that as a Christian people. I'm calling us to do that, to bring up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, that every one of them will be saved. We, we need to be intentional about it. But today I want to honor and thank and bless you women who have made a sacrifice behind the scenes. You don't get up here and pray. You don't get up here and read. You don't get up here and preach. But you do that individually with all of these children. And that is a great treasure that this church has. My mother abandoned me. But women in the church took me under their wing. And they mothered me. I learned the value of women through what they did and their sacrifice. It wasn't that they needed more children or needed somebody else. They just expressed the very love of Christ to me in a special way. And I'll be ever indebted to that love that was given to me that no one really knows. And it was more than just one, although one made a special effort. There were others who contributed. And so I thank them for that. And many of them don't even know the fullness of the impact that they had on my life. And so I want to pray for you now as you impact the kingdom of God, oftentimes unseen and unknown to us, but not to God. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for these women beautiful as these flowers are they don't compare to the beauty and radiance of each one of these women who are uniquely formed in your image to bear and broadcast the glory of your grace in their life and make a huge impact on others and particularly those that they care for and nurture in various ways in according to their relationships. I pray for each one, that they would not be discouraged in the days in which we live. They would not feel despised or dismissed, disheartened, as difficult as it might be for those particularly that have children immediately under their care. I pray that you give them great courage, great conviction, to know that these children will rise up and call them blessed. And not just the ones who have the care of the children in their own home, but the ones who provide that care to other children, within, particularly the kingdom of God, it, within the church. And I bless them as well for their impact in my life. I pray that you bless them and keep them. I pray that you would make your face shine upon them. I pray that you would allow them to see glimpses of your glory expressed in the joy of the little ones who come to know Jesus Christ as Lord. May their impact last for eternity, looking for that blessed hope and returning of Jesus Christ our Lord. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.
1: You may be seated. Let's continue our singing. Return to hymn 514. Remain seated. Be still, my soul, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 7, 514.
2: still my soul, the Lord is on thy side. What a wonderful reminder. Good morning, church, and happy Mother's Day. Today we will be reading a passage that God's people have looked to for well over two millennia as an exemplar for godly womanhood. Please turn with me to Proverbs chapter 31 in the Pew Bible. It's on page 552. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. <clears throat> We'll start in verse 10 and finish the remainder of the chapter. Something that I noticed while I was reading through this passage this morning, and I'm sure at some point our pastor has mentioned this before, but I either forgot or wasn't listening expositionally. These verses, verses 10 through 31, if you do the math, that's 22 verses, which is the same number as the Hebrew alphabet. And these verses are arranged much like the eight-verse sections in Psalm 119. Each verse in the original Hebrew starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet in order. It's a beautiful literary way to communicate truth. But don't worry, I won't be reading it in Hebrew. I can't. Let's start in English in verse 10. An excellent wife who can find... With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears Yahweh is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, today we lift up and honor the many godly women in our midst and all the others who have gently and lovingly touched our lives and nurtured us towards the fear and admonition of you. We thank you and praise you for the love and diligence that your Holy Spirit has wrought in their hearts for the glory of your bride, the Church. Please help us to remember, as godly femininity continues to be attacked in these dark days, that their ultimate defender is Yahweh and he will protect his holy ones. Please help us as men to be strong and courageous in the strength of you to defend and protect them as it is right for us to do. Please use these offerings to glorify your name, build your church, and hasten the coming of your kingdom which is as certain as anything else in the history of the universe. Please help us all to gird up the loins of our sober minds and set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us when Jesus Christ is revealed. It's in the strong and powerful name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen.
1: your handbooks once more and stand and turn to number 111, The Love of God. I have loved you with an everlasting love, Jeremiah 31, 3. 111. Oh.
0: Thank you, Blake, Amber, and ladies, Stella, and the church. The love of God, I like that song, it, um, especially that last line, it's well-written poetically, isn't it? The love of God, essentially, if I were to summarize it, it simply would be His grace, And mercy, grace giving us what we don't um, merit, and mercy not giving us what we do. (laughs) That is His love. But that love is mediated through a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. And here we are in Hebrews chapter 7, and we're focusing on that mediator, Jesus Christ. I just want to talk a little bit about the character of this mediator. We'll see what we get through, and I'll pick it up when I return. I invite you to turn to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7. This study in the book of Hebrews here in chapter 7, it, as I mentioned last week and introduced this, it picks up where the preacher had left off in chapter 5, verse 9, when he brought up the word Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a person, the king of righteousness. That's his focal point, he would say, and that in bringing him up, he is a type, or he points to Jesus Christ. In 5.9, it talks about Jesus Christ, who is the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. It isn't the obedience that brings that about, but that is the result of salvation. That you have a different desire and disposition of your heart than to want to obey Christ. It begins first with confessing him as sovereign Lord. That is, you would obey the Lord, your sovereign The preacher goes on in chapter 5 and verse 10. He says this Jesus is designated by God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And you know how it goes as we flow through it. He says, I have a lot to say. But he was concerned with his particular audience that he might bring up the word Melchizedek and they might think, well, I wonder what's for lunch. As we might as well. So he warns them to listen, to pay attention, to not be dull of hearing or lazy, if you will, but rather to be very careful to think on this. He's preaching to an audience, in his particular case, if you remember, of Jewish people who would, in their mind, they came to Christ but now they, they're thinking about going back to their cultural religious system to walk away from Jesus. His argument is that any pathway, and this is where it would apply certainly to us as well, any pathway and any direction away from Jesus Christ is a pathway and a direction away from the living God. You aren't going to the living God to go to Judaism Islam, or any other religious system that might set itself up. Christ. Christ is the way that leads to life. Every other pathway will lead to darkness rather than light. It is a pathway or a road to death, not life. So this is an important instruction to pay attention he's going to demonstrate and prove his work but his, uh, his 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 uh, point by pointing to the work of Jesus Christ and in particular his mediatorial work and it's something that we must think about it's actually not mentioned a lot in scripture but it is mentioned a lot in this book in fact that is one of the major points throughout in Demonstrating the supremacy of Jesus Christ, it is to do so to recognize that there is one mediator between God and man. It is the man Christ Jesus, no one other. Focus on him. This mediatorial work is necessary between God and man because of our condition before God. Our natural state in which we're born is a state of rebellion. In Adam, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Now I've already remarked on the children how beautiful and lovely they are, and indeed they are. But at the very heart, you will see expressed in them their own sinful idolatry. They are ultimately worshippers of themselves. He will take strong parenting and nurturing skills to teach them otherwise. Ultimately, it will require a new birth, a spiritual birth, a birth by the Holy Spirit, which will bring about a different disposition of heart in which the child then wants to honor God by obeying Him. You can teach them those skills by having them obey you. But always pointing to the reason for them to obey is that they might learn to obey God ultimately and pray that they would have those Godward desires that are brought about by faith. Those Godward desires, however, need to continue. It isn't like an event in which you get salvation checked off, and then you go on to do something else. No, it is a new creation in Christ. And for you to be a new creation in Christ and for you to continue to obey Christ, you're going to need a mediator continually. That is Jesus Christ. And that's his point here, his major point, about Jesus Christ as our mediator. Jesus spoke the worlds into existence. In fact, you're in Hebrews. It's easy to turn. Go back to chapter 1. Remember, as he introduced this whole thing, pointing out to the supremacy of Jesus Christ, where he says, in these last days, it is Christ." That is, the final revelation of all we need to know is through Jesus Christ. He's spoken, that is, God has spoken through his Son. Prior to that, there were prophets. There were people that he appointed to speak. Now the Son actually came, God incarnate, this one who is heir of all things. Why is he heir of all things? Because they're all his to begin with. Verse 2, chapter 1, He created the world. How did the world get here? How do all that you see is here? It is because this one, Jesus Christ. We can't make too much of Him. Because he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, verse 3. That is, he's saying, This Jesus is not anybody. He is the one who spoke the worlds into existence. This is God himself incarnate. And beyond that, notice if you're there, look at this here. Then he says, He upholds the universe by the word of his power. That same principle applies to us being obedient to the faith. It is because of Jesus Christ. The only reason this world hasn't fallen apart, although a lot of people see the handwriting on the wall, if you will, and panic about it and say, well, we we need to make some sort of carbon tax. We need to worry about this. I'm not suggesting you aren't a good steward, but let me tell you this. You don't hold all things by the word of your power. It is Jesus Christ. Go to him. use any anxiety or fear to call you to come to Christ and then have a confidence that he knows what he's doing because he made it all to begin with and he keeps it all. It is this one who has then purified our sin and is king and sat down on the majesty on high, it is complete, it is done. And that is how you can be assured of your salvation. It is because of the completed work of Jesus Christ. But there is a continual aspect, that is, he continues as a mediator. And this is why you won't fall away. Because although you might be unfaithful, he is not. He is always faithful, he is always true, and he is the only one. We continue because of his continual mediatorial work on our behalf. It isn't a one-time event. So this preacher in Hebrews, he, he wants his congregation then to exalt in to praise the, the glory of Jesus Christ. And particularly, his, his focus here is, is on his mediatorial work as a high priest. He wants us to know not only what he has done, but what he is doing and what he has promised to do on our behalf. On the behalf of his beloved... Those that are in Christ are said to be gifts of God. A gift from the Father. A gift for which he will not lose because he will keep by the word of his power. The reason I have an apostasize is because of Christ's mediatorial work on my behalf. And so I praise him. I have to be reminded of it from time to time. And what a great reminder and the response is great praise and worship. That's what the preacher wants the people to know here. How could you think of going anywhere else? Teach that to your little ones. Where, where would you go to find eternal life? Show them that it is in Christ and Christ alone. There is nothing superior. So to identify some of the aspects which we'll get into... These aspects of this mediator, not inclusive here, but some of them are are typified by this one person, Melchizedek, because sometimes it's easier to think about those things that are immaterial by focusing on that which is material. The message of Hebrews, I said before, is essentially a sermon based in Psalm 110, as we would note it and particularly verse 4, where David looks back from Genesis 14 and provides an inspired commentary on that historical event when Abraham met Melchizedek, and speaking of the Messiah, the one to come, who would come, a thousand years later, he said, "'You are a priest forever.'" after the order of Melchizedek. So it would be helpful for us to know what is meant by this type, Melchizedek, so that we could understand better the antitype, which is Jesus Christ. If you're in Hebrews, you can then move forward again to chapter 6 as an introduction to get a summary statement of who this person is. It is after the order of Melchizedek. The preacher of Hebrews then transitions back to bring this subject back up, which we'll go through in chapter 7. And he explains it this way. We have this, verse 19 of chapter 6, we have this, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the interplace behind the curtain. It's the imagery of the temple worship, if you will. The the curtain would have been the holy place. And what imagery is he using? Well, there is an anchor, an anchor of the soul, and it's in the holy place. That is, it is in the very throne room of God. As he began in chapter 1, he says he sits down on the majesty on high. That is the anchor to your soul. It is Jesus Christ. That's your lifeline, an anchor in heaven, only one, Christ. And he says he's gone before, verse 20, like a forerunner, if you will, on our behalf. Because where he is, is where we will be. All of those that are in Christ will be with him. And it is steadfast and sure because of Jesus Christ. And then he has become and demonstrated, then that fulfilling that prophetic type, a priest forever after this order of Melchizedek. I'm going to read our text in chapter 7 now. And for time, I think I'll just go down to verse 17 because I want to unpack some of these aspects, and I'll just get to probably three today. But let's look at the text then as he unfolds Melchizedek, and I invite you to read the whole chapter on your own, to take what I've said today and compare it, think about it during the week, and we'll resume in two weeks. Chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him, Abraham, apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is by first, by first, by translation of his name, speaking of Melchizedek, king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means. Then. He is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But, and notice this is important, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. This is the typified nature of Melchizedek. He points forward or illustrates Christ. Verse 4. See how great... This man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. but, But this man who doesn't have descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Old Covenant versus New. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe for which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with the tribe of Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that you will grant to us by the power of your Spirit to be able to see and savor Jesus Christ increasingly. May we look at these aspects that are typified by Melchizedek, those things that point to Jesus Christ, and may our assurance in him and our affections of him increase even in this day and create great courage and conviction in Jesus Christ alone. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As I've mentioned by way of introduction, that this section here provides a comprehensive look at Melchizedek and, in particular, what it typifies, and that's this mediatorial work of Jesus Christ. Melchizedek, as I mentioned, is an actual person, he resembles Christ. In that sense, he is a type of Christ he points to. And I think I mentioned last week that this isn't by happenstance. This is by the very divine providence of God that he brought about this person to have this engagement with Abraham for this very time right now to demonstrate and point to Illustrate, if you will, Jesus Christ. That's the whole point of Melchizedek. Look at verse 4. Speaking of this Melchizedek, who exists in reality, in history, he points to Jesus and notice what it says about him. see how great this man was that phrase, the preacher draws our attention to the reality of the superiority of Melchizedek. This is one who serves as a marker for the one who will ultimately fulfill all of those aspects in reality, in perfection. It's pointing to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. I'll note a few of those aspects with the time that remains. And the first one I want you to think about specifically your mediator, Jesus Christ, is his sovereignty. For you to recognize that indeed he isn't any priest. He is of a special order. He is a sovereign priest. I alluded to that in verse 2, if you notice here. It says his name, of course, is king of righteousness. That is the name of Melchizedek, who points to Christ. Melech is king, and Zedek in Hebrew is righteous. So, hence, you have this idea of king of righteousness. But it goes on to tell where he's from, and that is king of Salem. Salem means peace. It is an old name for Jerusalem. We emphasized that last week that it reminds us of these two concepts, that is, righteousness and peace. The only way you'd have righteousness before God is through the king of righteousness, and therefore have peace with God through the very prince of peace. We need peace with God, as I've mentioned, a righteous God who justly responds to the rebellion of sin, That just response is what we might call the wrath of God. The wrath of God being revealed, which, by the way, some of it is by the way in which he allows people to do what they want to do. It's not suppressing evil in their own life. It is a revelation of the suppression of their uh, knowledge of God and a response of wrath from God to them to give them the desires that they want, which will ultimately destroy them. won't lead to flourishing. It will lead to failure. God's wrath is an attribute of God, but not intrinsic in the way love is. It is true that God will express wrath. But wrath is more about, think of it as a response, a righteous response to that which is unrighteous. A response that must be. Just like light would dispel darkness, therefore God's righteousness would dispel that which is unrighteous. God is not angry in the way we are angry. His wrath doesn't flow, if you will, out of an essential part of his character. It flows out from his righteousness as a response to that which is evil, to that which leads to failure, and the lack of flourishing. So the peace then that we need and we have with God through Jesus Christ comes about through the destruction of sin. God must destroy sin, respond to it, otherwise we would have no peace with him. This is brought about through a singular way, and that is through Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man. It is through Jesus Christ His mediatorial work, then, is emphasized. And like Melchizedek, it would remind us, indeed, that he is this holy God, this king of righteousness, but also king of peace. This is the highest source. And though a priest, in their function, functions as a servant, as which Christ did, He always remains a sovereign. And I think that's something for us to keep in mind. When we come to Christ, our mediator, who will mediate on our behalf, serve as a priest, he is always sovereign Lord. And the author of Hebrews makes that point. In fact, that is our confession, indeed, that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you have your keep your finger in Hebrews 7, if you want to see the fullness of his revelation expressed, you can find it in Revelation chapter 19. In the incarnation, that is, when Christ was born, took on human flesh, his deity was veiled. His sovereignty was veiled, veiled veiled in flesh. We, We couldn't fully see it. We can see some expressions of it, some glimpses of it. If we saw the fullness of it, it would blind us like a blinding light. But he is coming again, and we call it the second coming. And the book of Revelation details much of those events, and particularly in chapter 19, it tells us about what it might be when Christ returns in the fullness of of his glory. It'll be contrasted quite a bit to his, what we would call his first advent. This second advent is a revelation of his glory. And in fact, that's what the word revelation means. It, it, it means the, the revealing, if you will, of Jesus Christ. I'll drop down to verse 11, if you're there, in chapter 19. There's a vision John gets. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. How'd he come in? On a donkey, humble, veiled. They hailed him as king, and yet they didn't. He's king all along, but here it won't be veiled. Here you'll see it in full glory. That's the picture that one sitting on it is called what? Faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. It isn't that he's a warmonger, an angry person. He's fully righteous. And again, as you stand before him in unrighteousness, you will melt away. There will be no struggle, no real battle if from our perspective we use him in terms and think of it in a battle, is nothing. This one who creates the world by the word of his power, who continues it by the word of his power, when he comes to destroy evil and the evil one, it will be over. That's the imagery. His eyes are like a flame of fire. They're just trying to give you an imagery of it. In his head are many diadems. That is, he is sovereign Lord. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called, the word of God. This spoken word is Jesus Christ Listen to him, as the preacher of Hebrews would say. God spoke many different ways, but now he's speaking through his Son. We have it recorded for us here. And this is an event at the end of the age. The to armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Those who are aligned with Christ. But speaking of this Christ... From his mouth comes a sharp sword to which to strike the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. This is the imagery of the return of Jesus Christ. Anyone outside of Christ will be trampled like grapes the very wrath of God. But who is this one? This one with the diadems on his head. The one with the flaming eyes of wrath against that which is unrighteousness. The one with the sharp sword cutting from the very word of his power. That's the imagery from his mouth. Here he is on his robe. You want to know the name? No one knows it but himself, that is, that he is the one that has declared who he is. We don't imagine Jesus any other than he actually is on his robe and on his thigh. That is the thigh of power. He has a name written, here it is, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It is this sovereign Lord who is the King of Righteousness. It is this sovereign Lord that brings about an enduring and lasting peace only in Him. And that's the point of this preacher in Hebrews. Why would you go anywhere else? You will stand before Him. Come to Him right now. That should bring a bit of trembling and fear. And that's good. Because the beginning of wisdom begins with what? Fearing God. Absolutely. No apologies for that. In fact, the psalmist would say in Psalm 2, as it ends, that messianic psalm, where it talks about this one who is coming to rule the nations. Here is the admonition given, and a good one for us. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly Kindled, Psalm 2 12. But here's the rejoinder Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. That's the blessed man. That's the blessed man from Psalm 1 who meditates on God's word day and night, who feasts on God, who takes refuge in him, as expressed in Psalm 2. Because God is sovereign. This mediator that we have, this king of righteousness, this king of peace, is always sovereign. Number two, back to Hebrews chapter 7. Because of who he is, then, it would be axiomatic, to understand that he is indeed superior to everything else, as I've mentioned. And that's this overarching point that he's making in verses 4 through 10 in Hebrews 7. The superiority of this priest. This priest who is Lord. This priest who has on his thigh written King of Kings and Lords of Lords. This sovereign then is naturally superior. And in their particular case... He would be superior to any other priest in this Levitical system. Any priesthood here in the Levitical system, because by the type of Melchizedek, it demonstrates it preceded the Levitical system. And that's what he's getting to in verse 4. Note here how great this man was. Physically, he's showing how great Melchizedek is, but spiritually demonstrating how great Christ is. And in their case, Abraham, who is the patriarch, who they look forward to, it is this Abraham who gives a tenth of his spoils to Melchizedek. And he explains in verse 5, this might be a bit complicated to us, I'll try to simplify it best I can. He says, see how great this man is, Why? And those, verse 5, descendants of Levi, they receive this priestly office. They have a commandment in the law to take tithes from people. That is from their brothers. And they descend from Abraham. He's, this Mosaic covenant had a number of requirements for the people to, to tithe. You added them up, it's about 33 and a third percent their income. It was a tax, essentially. Governmental taxes, if you will. But it's different in Abraham. He's giving, which that's a good number to use, 10%, which traditionally was used, particularly at that time. But he doesn't have this commandment to give. Under the Levitical priesthood, they were commanded to give. There were free will offerings that they gave in addition to that, but there was also this command, this requirement, if you will. But the point of contrast is this: Abraham the patriarch, he offers the man of God, Melchizedek, in this case, as gratitude for God's blessing. He's not obligated, in this case, to pay tribute. He gives them a free will offering. It's a recognition on Abraham's part that all that he received, and particularly the victory in battle where these spoils came from, to begin with, if you remember the story we went through last week, Genesis 14. He's thankful for the good gifts that have come because he recognizes they come from God. Beloved, that's the spirit of giving. To recognize every good and perfect gift comes ultimately from God. The only reason we have anything is because God has granted it to us. Melchizedek then functions as a mediator between God and man, typifying that. It may not seem that much to you and I that Abraham would be giving this tenth of his spoils to this priesthood, but to them it would have meant a lot. If you look down at verse 7, he says it's beyond dispute. The inferior is blessed by the superior. Again, he's emphasizing the whole point in this is to emphasize the superiority of Jesus Christ over all mediators and particularly the entire Levitical system that they had been under. It doesn't hold a candle. And he demonstrates it from Scripture historically that the Messiah, typified by Melchizedek, is superior to their own, patriarch that preceded the Mosaic system. Abraham, patriarchal father of the nation of Israel, is then blessed by Melchizedek. It is Abraham, the father of the nation, who pays tribute. And this sets a precedence for us as well. As I mentioned, all our gifts are not bringing about some sort of blessing to God. It is an expression and recognition that everything we have comes from Him. And everything we continue to have comes from Him. And it glorifies Him when we recognize that truth. We sing a phrase, praise God from whom all what? blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. In verse 9 in our text, it talks about this, and I'll deal with this briefly, just to clarify this Described as the seminal relationship of headship in verse 9. It says one might even say that Levi himself who received tithes paid tithes. That's an important concept then for us to understand. And you can find that concept expressed in a greater detail in Romans chapter 5. You may wish to turn. Romans chapter 5. This concept of headship, seminal headship, federal headship, however you want to describe it, is something that is expressed in Scripture and and we need to understand. In Romans 5, and I'll drop down to verse 12, it talks about sin coming into the world. It says, sin comes into the world through, note this, one man. how to it get here? Adam. Adam functions as the federal head of all humanity. This is why everyone does not start with a clean slate. You don't have to teach your children to lie, cheat, and steal. They can do it on their own. He said, where does that come from? You know, Here's where it comes from. Because we were in Adam when he fell. He represents all of mankind. If you were there, you would have done the same thing. I know you think you would have done differently, but you wouldn't. That's the point. So, verse 12, it says, So then death spread to all men because all sin. How does all sin? In Adam. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Adam is our representative, who was, note here, a type of the one to come. And here the type is used as well. And by contrast, the first man, the last man, Jesus Christ, The free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. That's the point that he's making here. That it is through this one man, Jesus Christ, that would abound to all in life who put their refuge in him. The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following the trespass brought about condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought about justification. For if because the the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, that's a seminal headship that we're talking about, so the act of the righteous leads to justification and life for all men. For by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. It is through this king of righteousness that it will be accomplished. It is only through this one man that this righteousness will be received. That's Paul's point here, too, which agrees with the the preaching in Hebrews. The law came then, for what purpose? To increase the trespass. That is, the law is set up and it doesn't bring about life, it brings about condemnation because it demonstrates that you're not righteous. That's the point. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Grace is the unmerited favor of God granted to those that are In Christ Jesus. So that as in sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This connection there is to demonstrate that the promised blessing of Abraham is granted to men through the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ typified in the blessing by given by Melchizedek to Abraham on our behalf. I have one more point I think I can squeeze in here before we close. Back to Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 11. It talks about perfection. If protect, perfection Had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, we wouldn't need another priest. Jesus Christ is unique and he isn't just another of the same kind, he is a self sufficient priest. We have the doctrine of aseity. It's a good word to know because it kind of encapsulates good theology to rightly think about God, and particularly here, our mediator, Jesus Christ. We may become like Christ in our Christianity to grow in grace, the knowledge of the Christ, but we will never be Christ. We will never become deity. The creature is always distinct from the creator. God is self-derived, if you will, self-originated. He is self-sufficient. He is independent and autonomous. And we like to think of ourselves as independent, autonomous, but we're really not. And it doesn't take much to remind us of that very fact. God is not like us in that respect. Our Jesus Christ, our high priest, does not depend on anything else outside of himself. This perfection that's spoken of here refers to the ability to accomplish reconciliation between God and man, which results in peace. There is no religious system, no ritual that can accomplish this, and you certainly couldn't do it on your own. In Hebrews chapter 10, I'll just read it for you. If you want to turn over there, you can, but I'll read it for you. It it explains this as he continues on. For since the law has a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered. That is the sacrifices. Since the worshippers, having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sin. This... Change of the priesthood he's talking about in verse 11 of chapter 7 is kind of a rhetorical question in a way. There is a need for a different system. It was only there to point to this one, Jesus Christ, who has come as a priest and as a mediator, not to abolish all that went before, as he would say in Matthew 5, but to fill. To fulfill them, nothing wrong with the law; it is righteous, holy, and good. Paul would remind us in Romans chapter seven. But the problem is us; we're not holy, righteous, and good, and therefore we need a mediator who is a mediator that doesn't depend on anyone else or any other thing mediator who is distinct from all of it, who is unique, and that mediator is Jesus Christ. He is a unique priest in that way, as it's expressed in chapter 7 by Melchizedek, typifying this idea of no father and no mother, no beginning, no end. That's speaking of Christ and his aseity that he, he is eternal He doesn't depend on anything else. Instead, he has an indestructible life, verse 16 of chapter 7. He's not a priest based on the basis of legal requirements like the Levitical priesthood, nor on bodily descent, that is a family member moving forward, but by the power of an indestructible life. He has an indestructible life because Jesus Christ doesn't depend on anything else. He stands alone in that way. Melchizedek then would remind us at the very least three things that I want you to get. One is the sovereignty of our priest, King The superiority of our priest, no other thing like him, no other one. And finally, the self-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. He's not dependent on anything else, but we are dependent on him. He is indeed, as the text of scripture would say in verse 17, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you would grant us insight from your holy word, that our affections for Christ would be increased, that we would find, indeed, our refuge in him and him alone. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'll give you a moment to reflect on these words. If you have not confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, you can do so even now where you're at. Not to me. Confess it to him. Respond and think on these things. Take a moment. Father, grant us to indeed see a clear vision of Christ and be comforted by all that he is, indeed, a priest forever, our priest, after the order of Melchizedek. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I do want to do the doxology since you prayed. I don't know what song we're doing, but I liked it. Did y'all want to sing that too? Jerry, you come on up and Lead us if I mess you up here. This is what I do best. Probably the girls, too, but y'all can kind of fiddle around with that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> hey Let's all stand up. <clears throat> what number is it? Six, six, six what? 668. Six, six, 68. And way back in the book. <clears throat> All right, six hundred and sixty-eight. <laughs> the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen and amen. We're dismissed. (laughs)